You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 10 a.m. on January 22, 2023, presented by Rev. Chris Duke. Right, let's give our attention to God's Word. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, Zion, escape you who live in daughter Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says, after the glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming. And I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my, my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we look at this imagery, as we look at this vision, we pray that you would open our eyes to see your majesty, to see your grace, to see your, your great plan of your coming kingdom. And so, Lord, uh, reveal to us your your word, reveal to us your will for our lives. And Lord, help us, help us to be gracious as well. Help us to be thankful of what you've done for us and what you're going to do for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you look at the church of Jesus Christ, whether in history or in our own time today, the very fact of its existence is a very strong evidence of both the existence of God and the truth of Jesus' words. Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Of course, the rock, the rock is Jesus. In the history of the church, it's been battered by storms of persecution from outside and scandalous weaknesses from within. There have been times and places where evil tyrants have tried to eliminate Christians 
and they've tried to blot out God's word from the face of the earth, but those tyrants have passed on and the church and God's word live on. There have always been false teachers within the church who spread destructive heresies that lead many astray. There have been Christian leaders who have fallen into horrible sins, bringing shame to the name of Christ. Today the modern church is rife with false teaching and moral scandals. In spite of all the problems, yet God has a remnant that is faithful to him. But not only the church, but also the existence of the Jewish people with their presence in the promised land. This is a witness to God's existence and the truth of his word. About 4,000 years ago, God promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. God would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And down through history, Israel as a people has been surrounded by fierce enemies whose aim was to wipe them off the face of the earth. The Holocaust under Hitler and Nazi Germany and the, and the present Islamic terrorism both stem from intense hatred of the Jews. The Arab world is united in its desire to see the Jew, Jews expelled from the promised land and even eradicated as a people. Although they haven't turned back to God, the Jews still exist and are in the promised land as a testimony to the truth of God and his promises. We read from Romans 11, verses 20, from verse 25, it predicts a glorious future for the Jews. In our text today, commentators tend to go in either one of two directions. Either they spiritualise the promise to Israel here by applying them exclusively to the church or they apply them exclusively to Israel without mentioning any application to the church. Now I'm going to suggest that we should consider both applications as we apply to Israel and also to God's church. Our God has made and he keeps his promises to encourage us as his people. Our God has made and keeps his promises. And we examine now the third night vision of Zechariah, given to Zechariah. And we keep both of these applications in mind. God will defend and bless his chosen people in his time. In Zechariah's third vision in chapter 2, God reassures his people of his compassion and his future blessing for them, especially in sending his Messiah. And this vision assumes God's absolute sovereignty. In other words, God rules and he's right to cast off certain nations in order to establish his chosen people according to his purpose. If God were dependent on human will to accomplish his uh, purpose, it would come to nothing. God is very definite in his plans to defend and bless his people for his own glory. But at the same time, these visions exhort God's people to obedience. 
So we have responsibility as well. God doesn't accomplish his sovereign plan apart from his people to be obedient to his will, but rather through it. And the Bible always affirms both God's absolute sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, earlier in chapter 1, when we discussed this last week, that God defends his chosen people in his time by punishing the wicked who oppress them. In, the, in verses 18 to 21 of the first chapter, we see four horns. We're reminded of those today. In biblical imagery, the horn symbolises strength and power, especially of nations or of Gentile kings. We read about these in Psalm 75 and Jeremiah and Daniel uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8. Zechariah asked the angel in verse 19 of chapter 1, what are, the, are these horns? And the angel answers, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. Now, commentators differ on the identification of these four horns. Some say that the number of four represents the four compass points, thus indicating that Israel is surrounded by hostile enemies without any specific enemy in view. Others say that the four horns are either Assyria, Egypt, Babylon and Medo-Persia, past and current oppressors of Israel, or they are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome, as we read about in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. These last four are the four major powers that dominate the Jews during the times of the Gentiles. And then the Lord shows Zechariah four craftsmen. And the prophet asks, what are these coming to do? What are these craftsmen coming to do? And the Lord tells him that these four craftsmen have come to terrify and throw down the four horns that have scattered Judah. And we can learn from this vision. First, we learn that God's people should expect severe hardships and opposition simply because they are his people in this evil world. Whether it is the nation of Israel or whether it is the church, the Bible is clear that God's enemy, enemies will stir up opposition right up to the final victory of Christ. The Christian life is pictured as warfare. And friends, warfare is not a Sunday school picnic. We're commanded to put on the full armour of God so that we can withstand the evil days as we read about in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Not only do we have to be ready to fight the enemy from outside, but also ready to fight against the enemy from within. Because we're reminded from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, the flesh of the fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Warfare requires a certain mindset. You don't go into battle with a, in a casual manner with your mind on other things. You prepare your mind for action. You're vigilant and you're focused so that you don't get ambushed. Many Christians wander around the world as if they're going on a Sunday school picnic. Now, I love Sunday school picnics or church picnics, okay? But we need to realise that we live in a world that is not always 
at peace with us. Rather, we need to realise that sometimes people are in opposition. When trials of life come, when opposition hits us, it's easy, friends, to be caught off guard. As Christians, we should expect enemy opposition. But we should know that God will be the strong defender of his people and that he will punish the wicked in his own time. For each horn, God raised up a craftsman to throw it down. In some cases, God's people suffered for years before he brought deliverance. It wasn't always on their desired timetable. And the point is, he will defend his chosen people and punish the wicked in his own time. While many of God's faithful saints have died as martyrs, the cause of Jesus Christ will prevail. There's no doubt as to the final outcome. But we might all wonder, why does God permit this kind of strong opposition against his people? Well, there are multiple reasons. And one reason, especially in Zechariah's time, was that God used opposition to chasten his own people. He chastened them for their worldliness and, their, and for their unfaithfulness. The Babylonian captivity was directly linked to Israel's many years of disobedience to God. Another reason God allows opposition is to teach us that we cannot prevail in our own strength. Therefore, we need to be ever more reliant on God alone. Sadly, we're all prone to lack faith in God until we're forced to do so, to believe him. Powerful opposition drives us, drives us to the Lord for protection. And coupled with this, God permits opposition to develop our godly character. So whatever the form of, of the opposition, this opposition ultimately will not last. God will judge all who oppose his people and he will deliver and vindicate his people in his own time. But he'll do it in his time, not in our time. God will bless his chosen people in his time as their defender and benefactor by sending his Messiah. And that's what we read about in this chapter. So Zechariah, he sees a man with a measuring line. Maybe, you know, we might say in, in our language, he sees a man with a tape measure. Or if we're really, really modern, he sees a man with a laser level today. And he's going out and he's measuring Jerusalem. And another angel meets Zechariah. Zechariah's interpreting angel and tells him to run and say to this young man in verse 4, Jerusalem... Jerusalem shall be inhabited as, as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. Many, many commentators think that this angel is once again the angel of the Lord. And the man who is measuring the city is representative of the Jews and Jerusalem. We're being told here to let God's promise shape our perceptions. And... Uh, we actually need to correct our perceptions. In Zechariah's first vision, God promised to rebuild Jerusalem, the temple, and restore the prosperity of his people. 
Then a word from the Lord in verse 5 assures his people, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Now, friends, do you remember the wall of fire or the pillar of fire that, the, that uh, led the Israel in, uh, in the wilderness? God used the pillar of fire to lead and protect Israel from her enemies, as we read in Exodus 14. The picture is that God will surround and defend his people from their enemies. And God also promises to be the glory in the midst of his people. The Shekinah glory had departed from the temple because of Israel's sin, as we read about in Ezekiel chapter 10. But now it would return through the presence of the Lord himself. But here is also a reference to the second coming of Christ. And it's a reference to the, the new creation and the new Jerusalem that we read about in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamp is its lamp. Or the lamb is its lamp. But even though this ultimate fulfilment still awaits for the future, there's certainly an application for the church today. In Acts chapter 20, 28 to 31, the elders of the church are exhorted to guard the flock from predators. And we should do, do all that we can to obey that charge. The Lord himself must be the defender of his church or would have failed centuries ago. We'll never experience anything close, of course, to the glory of God's presence that Revelation 21 speaks about until actually Jesus returns. But even so, we should strive to exalt Jesus Christ in his church so that those who come among us will declare that God is certainly in our midst. Both promises are related to our obedience. If we want God to be a wall of fire around us and to be the glory in our midst, we must walk in holiness before him every day, allowing his purifying fire to cleanse our hearts of all sin. We must be captivated with the beauty of his glory as we grow to know him more and more. Now the vision is applied with three commands from the Lord. The first command we find from verse 6, and it says, Up, up, flee from the land of the north. And the second command is from verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. This refers to believing Jews who are looking for Messiah. And the third command is the last uh, verse, 13, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Now, Babylon, in relation to Jerusalem, is situated east of Jerusalem, okay? But it's called the land of the north because the invaders would follow the, the, the Euphrates River roughly northwest and then they would swoop down because that was the way it was easier to travel. They would swoop down on Jerusalem from the north in that direction. And God repeats this command twice to his people to emphasise the importance of it. Flee, escape while you can. And so this command took faith to obey. 
Babylon, and then later the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, because the, Medi the Medes and the Persians, they conquered Babylon, the, the Medo-Persian Empire prospered. Babylon became the hub of the civilised world. It had economic stability, it had culture, it had comfort, it had security. Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire had it all. But Jerusalem, at the same time, was just a heap of rubble. There weren't any walls of defence. Hostile neighbours threatened every attempt to rebuild it. Yet God says to his people, I'm going to bless Jerusalem and judge Babylon. So flee Babylon while you can. Get out of your comfort in Babylon and return to Judah and Jerusalem. And then we come to verse 8. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. After the glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. Here is a reference to the Messiah. Here is a reference of the Father sending the Son in order to restrain the nations that plunder his people. Now Calvin says the phrase after the glorious one describes the ministry of Messiah in which he vindicates and demonstrates the glory of God particularly as he will punish Israel's enemies and deliver and establish his own people in kingdom blessing. Thus the first part of verse 8 explains why God's people should flee Babylon because God will send his Messiah vindicating his glory by conquering the worldly nations who have oppressed his people. And the Lord gives the reason why the Messiah will do this. He touches you, he, touch, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Now this shows how much God loves and cares for his people. The apple of his eye is actually a reference to the pupil of the eye. Your pupils are the most sensitive part of your body. You guard your eye more than anything because the eye is so important and so vulnerable. God says that his people are like that to him. And John Calvin puts it, the love of God towards the faithful is so tender that when they hurt, he burns with so much displeasure as though one attempted to pierce his eyes. So God's love for his people is a strong motivation to flee Babylon. And of course the command to flee Babylon is more than just an academic statement. In the scriptures, Babylon represents the world system that is in opposition to God. Even God's people find it easy to dwell there. For in Babylon there are many enticements. There could be money, there could be pleasure, there could be status, the good life. The church, world missions, the kingdom of God are all very nice but not nearly as enticing if the world would dangle these in front of us. But the Bible clearly warns us, do not love the world or, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. It's a matter of who and whom we love. You will either love this evil world and all that it offers or you'll renounce the world because 
By faith in Christ, you're now the apple of God's eye. You're the apple of God's love. It takes faith to obey God on this matter because the world looks mighty appealing and the church can look shabby in comparison. However, in the final chapters of Revelation, God reveals Babylon's demise in comparison to the church. Babylon and all her wealth are destroyed in one hour and the church rejoices over Babylon's destruction and enjoys the marriage supper of the Lamb. In your own time, read Revelation 18 and 19. The question we all need to ask ourselves, right now, am I dwelling in Babylon or am I dwelling in Jerusalem? Are you living for this world and are you living for what it offers or are you seeking first that God's kingdom and his righteousness are you storing up treasures in he- on earth or are you committed to advancing Christ's kingdom? We're all encouraged, we're all exhorted to examine ourselves. Where do I spend all my time? Where do I spend all my energy and my money? If you're committed to building his church, you'll spend significant amounts of time and you'll spend significant amounts of money to further God's work both here and around the world. The Lord pleads in verse 7, Come Zion, escape, you who live live in daughter Babylon. In Revelation 18 verse 20 it says, Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. The promise of judgment is repeated. God will judge Babylon. God will judge the political leaders of the world who oppose him, and the saints are commanded to rejoice. In Zechariah, the focus of their joy and the focus of their rejoicing is the coming of Messiah. And the salvation of the nations, when God will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land. And the focus in Zechariah 2 is with Messiah's second coming. When Jesus returns, he will dwell literally in the midst of his people, and the nations will find salvation in him. As we look to the literal future fulfillment of this promise in Christ's kingdom, We also should apply it to the church today. God's purpose is to be glorified among the nations. He's called us to find our joy in him and then to take that joy to the ends of the earth. God has promised that his kingdom will prevail in spite of difficulties, in spite of challenges, in spite of setbacks that we all may encounter as we proclaim Christ to the nations. So obey the command to sing for joy and rejoice over the promise of his coming. Don't keep that joy to yourself. Take it to the nations through your prayers. Take it to the nations through your giving. And for some of us, take it to the nations in your going with the good news of Jesus Christ who already has come but is also coming again. 
The command to flee Babylon is given to God's people dwelling in the world. The command to sing and rejoice is given to those who are daughters of Zion, who eagerly await the Lord's coming to dwell among them. The command to be still before the Lord, in verse 13, is given to all people. It's saying, in light of everything that has been said up to this point, in light of the certainty of God's future judgment of the nations and establishing Messiah's kingdom, be silent people. Be in awe because God is aroused and is about to act. The sleeping giant is now aroused and ready to take care of his enemies. But God's arousal is only an apparent image because we're reminded from Psalm 121 verse 4, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Even though God's judgment is delayed and it seems to us as, as if God is sleeping, the day is certainly coming when he will be aroused to judge all flesh. Verse 13 is similar to Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is a command to believers not to despair. Don't despair at what seems to be a delay in God's judgment. And it's also a command and it's a warning to unbelievers to hurry up, to hurry up and submit to God's call, to come to God, to return and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ before it's too late. So how you apply this message personally will depend on where you are. If you profess to know God, but are living with the daughter of Babylon, God's word for you today is get out of there quickly. Flee Babylon. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15 If you're dwelling in Jerusalem but are discouraged over trials and challenges that you're experiencing, God's word for you today is from verse 10. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Rest in the wonderful, gracious promise that you are the apple of of his eye, and that he will judge those who harm you. For those who don't belong to God, who haven't come to faith in God through Jesus Christ, his word to you today is trust in Jesus now and repent before it's too late and before he comes in judgment. No matter how great your sins he invites us all to trust in him as your saviour. Jesus who bore the punishment of your sin, my sin, when he died on the cross so that you could be called one of his people, so that you could be called one of his children, not just for now but forevermore, for all of eternity.
may we all come to this peace, this part, this realisation of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed you love and care for us so much that we are the apple of your eye. And because we are the apple of your eye, you have provided the means of our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that one day you're going to come again and you're going to make all things new and you're going to judge the living and the dead. Lord, we pray that each one of us will indeed find faith in you, that will believe your word and that we'll be part of your coming kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.